Hi, this is Cathy at That Mint Podcast. So at our conference last year, we were absolutely delighted to be joined by Stephen Bartlett, who you may well now know as the newest dragon in the Dragon's Den. Um, we're pretty confident that joining Verve Group meant that he kick-started his career and gave him opportunities he otherwise wouldn't have had. So at the event, what he was doing was talking about his experience of financial services, the way that advisors and people in finance should approach the way that they deliver their service if they want to attract new people to finance, younger people, entrepreneurs like Stephen. And he gave us some absolutely amazing insights. So for this month's podcast, we thought we would share you everything that he said, some of the very insightful questions that I asked, including whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich, which is actually a much, much more difficult question than you might expect. So here's Stephen. Hi. Hello. <laughs> that video is from 2016. I've not seen it in uh, in many, many years. Well, you're welcome for the blast from the past. <laughs> um, so for people who um, haven't listened to your podcast or read your book, do you mind just kind of telling us a bit about your journey to date and how you ended up on the Dragon's Den? Yeah, so um, always been a bit of a um, unafraid to follow whatever I thought was true, not necessarily right. And I think that's guided me in a really sort of relentless way throughout my life. So at about 15 years old, I realized that um, because I was not very good at going to class, my attendance was about 30%, um, I realized that, I, that grades weren't going to be the thing that made me rich and successful in my life. And I also, because I was able to throw these events and to influence my peers, and I'd done all the vending machine deals for my school so that they finally made a profit from the school, I'd kind of come to this realization that I think these are the people, when I get older, these are the people that I'm going to be in the working world with. And although my grades were clearly going to be really awful, because I was able to throw 9,000 person events at 16 years old on a couple of days notice and do these deals and do all of our school trips in our school, I thought that would be enough for me to build a life that was, was good for me. So I, I basically stopped going to school at 16, um, got, got expelled in sixth form at 17. Um, and then I, I managed to do my exams predominantly from home, got kicked off the football team and everything. In fact, my school said to me, Mr. Sprenkle, head of Key Stage 5, said, because um, they tried to expel me once, and then I gave him the letter, and I'd been giving him a lot of money because of the, um, the vending machine deals. He ripped it up and said, you're my little Harry Potter. I keep you under the, the stairs because the school, you make the school a lot of money. And then eventually, in the like, last couple of weeks of school, they, they did expel me. Um, but then I went off to university, to Manchester, to study business, thinking it was... I don't know, something I'd seen in a movie where you, you go and learn about business. It's an, it's an engaging and amazing. And in my first lecture, the, the young lady next to me was asleep and hungover. And I remember thinking, like, I'm going to go to the same places. As her, and she doesn't want to be here. And I genuinely wanted to learn about business. So that was my last ever lecture. Left there. Figured this wasn't going to be it. Um, you know, dropped out of the university. Called my mum. Said, I'm dropping out. She said, you drop out. You're never speaking to me ever again. Um, I said, fine, I'm dropping out, and um, didn't speak to her for about two years. And that was because she was, you know, she comes from Africa, she never had an education. Her other kids, all my older brothers and sisters, had all gone to like LSE and were accountants and actuaries and whatever else and lawyers. And I was just following whatever I thought to be true. Um, started my first business at 18, uh, existed that when I was maybe 20, didn't really get any cash from it, but it was a really good learning experience. And it was actually in that business, which was a student notice board. Um, I was faced with the challenge of how do you get millions of people to come to a website? 
And that's where I, you know, I tried flyers, posters, that, none of that worked. And then I tried this thing called social media in 2012. And I remember I went, I went and met a kid that had a Facebook page and I paid him 50 quid for it. And it worked. There were, there were people coming to my website. And this is like, it sounds obvious now, but back then, like 10 years ago, it was a really crazy idea to have social media pages. And to, so I basically, for that whole year, left my startup and focused on acquiring as many social media pages as I could, which is kind of what you saw in that video. That was kind of that, that phase. I went and met every young person that had built a big social media page, hired them and acquired their page. So we had 100 million followers. We were doing 7 billion video views a month. And then what comes after that video is we, we realized that with a big audience, we could build an e-commerce business. And the e-commerce business does still to this day hundreds of millions in revenue a year. Um, we built uh, a media publishing company, which rivaled Fox. We were doing seven, as I said, seven billion video views, video views a month. Um, the agency business, which is what you saw in the video, was all around the world, and we were doing the marketing for Amazon and Uber and Coca-Cola. And um, and then the last bit was the events business. We used these big audiences to put on some of the biggest events in the world, biggest fitness event in the world, second biggest beauty event in the world. And then um, the company went public in 2019, and then I resigned last year. That's my whole life. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. <Don. laughs> um, I was smiling when you said that you were at school about 30% of the time because my attendance in year nine was 32%. Um, and I'm just wondering if you know, there's, there's kind of issues there. But also one of the questions that um, somebody had put in for us to ask was, um, I think they'd read that you um, had dropped out in terms of academics and do you think obviously it comes down to people and the way that they work um, but do you think that there's maybe a need to um, to get younger people to understand that there's other routes to career success um, than going down the academic route that there's a lot more options and it's kind of suited to who you are? Yeah I think I think that's clearly the case and I think one of the things that I've come to learn in hindsight really this is a lesson for life generally is that we're all like I almost think about it like shapes. We're all completely different shapes. And um, in order to provide the best um, solution to the challenges we face in all walks of life, whether it's in your romantic relationships or your business or whatever, when you're facing these key pivotal, pivotal life decisions is the answer's bespoke. And for me, my education, like people think because I dropped out of university and stopped going to school that I'm like anti-education. I'm I educate myself more than anybody I know. Like I stay up all night on bloody YouTube watching blockchain videos and finance videos and investing videos and I'm obsessed with learning. So we can't conflate the institution or the system with education. They're two very different things. I'm in love with education, but I was sort of disenfranchised by sitting in a room for two hours with a guy in front of me telling me to make a hypothetical poster with crayons. Like for me, that didn't do it. That wasn't my way of learning. And I think as soon as we get closer to serving the child or the student or the pupil's interests and nurturing who they are and what, they, what their passions are and what their skills are, then we'll create more value for our economy. And, you know, I, I went and did a TV show with Channel 4 called Secret, Secret Teacher, I think it's called. Um, and I went undercover in a school in Liverpool, like a really rough school that performs really badly on Ofsted ratings or whatever. And um, I always was like anti-teachers. I thought teachers, they're just, they're just like naive. They don't get it. Um, but it was on that, um, on that show that I realized where the problems really lied because I sat with the head teacher and he said, if we get, let's say, a thousand kids in our school this term, then we'll get paid this much from the government. If we get 500, then we get paid half. And, and then he goes, and I go to him, so what's determining how many kids you get? He goes, the league table. And I go, what's determining the league table? He goes, grades. 
So I was like, this is just a business. It's like my business. You've got customers and you need to optimize for grades. And in fact, um, nothing else matters because you have to personally pay for crayons and footballs if you get 500 kids next term. You personally will pay. And I saw him personally pay for crayons and footballs. Um, so, of course, the system is optimized to get grades. And you were never going to get good grades out of me. There was a lot of other value to unlock, but it was never going to be grades. It was never going to be me sitting in an exam hall and regurgitating information. Um, so there was a high chance of me falling through the cracks and becoming a burden, an, ec an economic burden on society, because I could have easily believed that my D meant that I was a D, yeah. like a D person. And we, we know from labeling psychology that when you give someone a label, whether it's a grade or whatever, you call them poor or whatever, they will live that out in their decisions. They will come to believe that. And yeah, there's a, I mean, I could have quite easily um, gone through life aiming at D stuff that D people get and trying to achieve D things. And then I wouldn't have created 800 jobs, you know? So that's what I, I, I'm scared about with the education system is young kids believing that they are dumb and stupid and destined for a, you know, an inadequate life or whatever. Absolutely. Um just to go back as well on to when you were talking about kind of social chain and the way that it evolved from um, some kids who had large social media presences to putting on some of the world's largest events, even as you were saying it, and I'm quite comfortable with change and involving the business, and I think we do quite a lot, but in comparison to that pace of change, it, it, you know, it's absolutely nowhere near. How did you manage that kind of almost every day getting up and the company that you were running and therefore your job just changing every single day kind of how did you deal with that, that speed of it it's a really good question i think i think we set our business up in many ways to be pro change it's obviously easier when you have a, 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 a leader with high conviction because i can walk into rooms and say we're all going to launch this today or we're going to do this today and people would come with me but fundamentally we are like mantra when we were an agency business was keeping brands at the forefront of what's possible at 9 a.m. every morning, everybody in our company got a text message telling them everything that had changed in social media in the previous 24 hours while they were asleep. Because you're right, there's 10 updates shipped a, uh, a week to social media apps. And we need to, if we're going to keep brands at the forefront of what's possible, we need to be at the very forefront. So if Snapchat or Facebook or Twitter make a fundamental change, we need our clients to know that day and to be activating. That was our value proposition. We were, that was what we were all about. We were all about being super agile, taking high risks. We set up our project teams to be fast, agile, and to fail fast, as fast as possible. So I'd have, because I'd, I mean, we've all experienced it. You have an idea, you put 15 people on an email chain, you tell them the idea, whatever, and then seven months later, it's still knocking around that email chain waiting for like Dave to get back from annual leave, right? And I remember there's this really clear example I had where I came up with this idea and I was like, influencers on social media, I know they're faking their metrics. I know they're faking their follower number, their engagement number. So I was thinking about it over the weekend and I was thinking the only thing that I think you could use to, to know if an influencer is faking their Instagram likes is the rate in which those Instagrams likes arrive, the engagement arrives. Because because the way the algorithm slowly phases your content out, the engagement should go something like this. It should arrive really quickly, and then over time, you'll see it on your own posts, you start getting less likes and comments and stuff. So if we could just look at that engagement graph, we could basically see if an influencer is faking it. Because when you fake your engagement, it comes like this, and then it just goes flat. And then you might add some more likes, and they all come at once. 
So I said to the team, put them on an email thread. I said, I've got this idea. Let's call it likewise an influencer tool. We can use some AI to, to benchmark the, the way the engagement arrives. Send it to the team. A few months later, it's still knocking around in the email thread. And I'm thinking, and then so what I did is I took it, found some developers in India, built this thing over the weekend in three days myself, um, pulled another guy in to help me make a launch video. We launched it, and it made our company millions and millions and millions. And I still think it's making the company millions today. But that was a piece of innovation that nearly got lost because of too many people who all had another job to do who didn't care. So I, at that point, I changed the... It was also a really good learning moment for the whole company because everyone on that thread who kind of ignored... Not ignored it, but just mm. was, eh, right? They then got to see the impact it had on their job, the fact that we actually shipped that. And so from then on, we, we created a group called Move Fast, and, Move Fast and Make Things. And the way it works is every two weeks, we do sprints for something, doesn't matter if it's a shit idea or a good idea. We're going to sprint and do something. Put four people in there, and us four have, have a thesis, an idea. We're going to sprint, try and make it, build it, ship it. And then if it fails, whatever. We don't care. Because the, and this is another thing. Where, where if you want to incentivize people to take risk and to innovate, failure can't be the outcome of the experiment. Failure is not doing the experiment. Because the outcome of the experiment is just, eh, it's, it's hard to guess how people will receive something. And if your team are getting you know, criticized because you, you launched something and it didn't work, then they're not going to be incentivized to launch anything else. So I would criticize the team if we didn't do the experiment. When, we, when the thing is shipped, we can celebrate. Because it's out in the world, people might like it, they might not. But that was the point in which we was within our control. And it really changed things for us. We launched a lot of really cool things with a small group of people, tag people in and out, sprint two weeks, clear timelines, and just shipping stuff, um, and yeah, yeah, and I left, you know, this is a problem, I don't know if I should say this, but the last thing that I left the team with was this idea called the four, which was basically what I've just described to you, where all of our team members get a text every morning telling them everything that's changed in social media and what to do about it. I said, well, we can ship that to the world. We can do that to everybody, every social media manager in the land. You've got these like multi-level marketing companies. They have 50,000 entrepreneurs sat in their bedroom trying to figure LinkedIn out. We could ship that to the world, and I, I, designed it, built it um, in two weeks. Then I resigned. And it's now like, I don't know, 15, 13 months later, and I've just seen a tweet about it. <laughs> I'm like, fucking hell. Like, <laughs> and they changed the name. Fuck. <laughs> it's the best bit. <laughs> um, uh, I was like, no, they've lost it. They've lost that thing. Because, but, again, everyone's got a job to do. No one's asked about. They're, incent they're incentivized to do their job, not to try new things. And... Um, yeah. Um, which I guess is, it's a challenge anyway, isn't it? As the company grows, it's, we kind of always talk in verve around how do you stay um, innovating? How do you kind of keep the pace that we had when it was just me or two other people? Um, and already we're not, like I can feel it slowing down. So actually I could hear them all groaning when you were saying that because I'm thinking like the sprints, it's a great idea. Like the stuff that we've got, have that focus, carve it out from the day job and kind of get something done. And maybe that's, if we're talking innovation and disruption and evolving businesses, trying to tag a bit of disruption onto, you know, the 4.55 to 5 p.m. slot at the end of the day, it's not really going to do it. It's not. And I think every company has a group. Of, you can make the philosophy of the overall business very sort of conducive with, like, speed, disruption, and whatever. But I do think there are individuals in businesses that, are, that enjoy that much more. There's a certain type of individual in your business that will prefer things to be stable and, you know, 
they understand what they're doing, and there's a certain type of individual that will be more excited by creating something new and taking a risk and you know, building something, and um, knowing who those people are really, really matters. Um, and hiring, though, hiring against that, I think, is really important as well. It's what I do now. Like, I don't really care how much experience you have. I care more about your like, internal philosophy and your desire to create new things. Because you know, innovate, like, innovation is like coming for your job, and it's coming for your business. It's right behind you. It's this invisible bulldozer that is coming for you, whether you like it or not. You can't name an industry that hasn't been like severely disrupted, especially as blockchain and crypto and Web 3.0 comes. So I, I really, I you know, I really think it's so in key, especially in financial services at the moment, for companies to really embrace that philosophy of like, of um, yeah, of disruption and incentivizing their teams to to take risks, not to be safe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of finance, so what, one of the things that we kind of talk about a lot is the perception of financial services, where it was before, how much it's changed, and also which people, you know, people think, um, I'm not rich, so I don't need to see a financial advisor, and that's, that's absolutely not the point. Um, or, you know, I'm too young, I'll think about my pension when I'm in my 50s. Um, so I guess firstly, what is your perception of financial advice? Have you, do you get financial advice? Have you used an advisor? Kind of where do you sit with it? Um, I think, I th I've got to be honest, I think things are changing. And I think you've probably seen this huge uh, sort of insurgence of uh, retail investors coming into the market. Now you've got Robinhood and Revolut and we can all, we're all investors now. And I think cryptocurrencies was a tremendous gateway in, into getting young people uh, intrigued by finances and investing. I think it's like people don't, I don't think people have quite understood the magnitude of what's happening. Like even in my, my own personal team, average age, I don't know, 25, 26, 27, I think every single person is now an investor in Facebook and Adobe and they've got their Hargreave Lansdowne and, or they've got Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever. Um, this wasn't the case. I mean, because it's so accessible now to become an investor. I, got, like, I, really, I really think the world has changed is, and is changing right before our eyes and um, maybe it's because I'm a couple of years older and I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't notice it before, but it really has shifted. It's, most of my conversations every day with my friends these days are about money, savings, investing, even like my, my assistant, she sat over there, like she got a Hargreave Lansdowne account, is now investing money and had a friend over at my house the other day and we're talking about investing in funds and looking at compound interest calculators and um, yeah, making it, making invest, I think crypto's done a huge job of making investing cool. I guess um, from from within finance, the challenge has been. It feels like we're in a bubble sometimes, and like kind of this this wall, and people don't know what we do, um, and trying to get them over that it has been part of the problem. And I think you're right that actually almost that step of even hearing these terms and understanding how to invest, even you know whether it's Hargreaves, um, whether it's doing stuff yourself, whether it's just. Um, get more familiar with the concept of investing, that in itself might be a bit of a step forward, but then I think there's still a huge jump to, okay, well now, rather than me just playing around on um, you know, this app that I've downloaded, do I actually go and see a financial planner? What do they do? How do they help me identify my goals? How do they help me plan to kind of get there? Um, yeah, and I think, I think that's kind of the gap that we've got. But I don't want to go see a financial planner, though. I don't want to get off my phone. And this is, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, none of my friends are going to go see a financial planner. Right. They might go on TikTok or YouTube, 
But and I think I'm, what I'm speaking to here is if you want to appeal to a new generation, you have to go meet them on the platforms and in the medium that they live and the world they live in. Because if you're over here in your world trying to persuade them to come over, that's dragging a big, you know, a big dead donkey up a hill. Like, that's a huge, huge struggle. Um, I, think, I think the companies that win specifically at targeting a younger generation in financial services will be the ones that realize they have to go over and play in there, in, in our world. And I'm not going to even make a phone call. Like, I, I don't make phone calls. I use WhatsApp. Um, I use Instagram and, you know, social media apps and Discord and Reddit. And, and if you had a presence in one of those places where I could get financial service uh, advice, um, I would do it for sure because I'm looking for it. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not. I'm not going to go for a meeting or, or um, yeah, or, or make a phone call. Fair enough. Um, so when um, I was <laughs> I was reading some of your book, but I'll be honest, I haven't had time to read it all. Um, but luckily, in the first few chapters, <laughs> there was lots. There's an audio book. <laughs> I got the audio book. Um, <clears throat> there was stuff that you were talking about in terms of kind of this western binary almost bullshit that people buy into and you know you have to have a passion and you have to have a soulmate and everything's kind of black or white and these are things that you aim for um and i liked the and i guess it comes back to what you were saying earlier it's different shapes so you know kind of what shape are you it doesn't matter what other people think you need to do um i guess firstly can you because i've read a few chapters and people mightn't have um elaborate on that and has your view changed on that at all since you wrote the book well yeah so um kind of links to what I said earlier but um there's so many of these like words and questions in all of our lives and every and every part of our lives whether it's in your romantic relationships where you come home and your mother says is it love and that is that is a full letter word to describe something so like deep and powerful and subjective and then you sit there in front of your mum and as I used to and I how do I know what you're talking about and the love that you felt and whether I'm in it and you know and 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 we try to we obsess over the trying to answer yes or no to these really tough oversimplified um questions whereas really like a good question to have asked me would have been like how do you feel because that keeps the door open to me to express in the you know english language how i feel and it's the same thing in our careers where people say just got to find your passion or have you found your passion and again you, the question is presumptive the question presumes that you have a passion it alludes to the fact that it's singular and that you can go in search of it and find it like an Easter egg. And so in my DMs, I've got all these young kids that are like mildly depressed because they haven't found their passion. And the world has told them that it's out there, it's singular. And once they find it, all will be well. And so off they go in search of this singular passion that must be hidden somewhere. And they've just, they failed because they haven't found it. And so like, I came to learn at some point in my life that a lot of like words really fuck us up as a society, trying to fit into these binary boxes and answer yes or no to a bunch of nonsense that someone else created in another time is doing a ton of harm. So it was my decision just to refrain from all of it. Um, and on the, on the point of like passions, yeah, there's loads of things I'm interested in. I like DJing, I just did a big like theatrical show in Manchester with a thousand people. I wrote a book, I like love podcasting. I love Manchester United, Ronaldo's back. Like, I, you know, I love, I'd love doing things like this. I've got, I'm like a multifaceted human being and I refuse to be labeled as like social media CEO because then I have to go live out the instructions that come with that label. I have to go act like a social media CEO for the rest of my life, which is probably gonna end up in like some kind of midlife crisis because I ignored my love for music and the fact that I like to walk my dog, you know? And so I think um, my, my, my point in the book was just about resisting your labels to live a more sort of like well-rounded full life. But labels are there for a reason. We, 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 we put, label ourselves to fit in and to, to be understood but they do a lot of damage. And so 
I think I've led a better life and I continue to lead a happier life because I just resist that. And I resist the, the, like the, the temptation of trying to answer these like binary questions about my life and where I am and is this love, is this my passion and those kind of things. Um, so when I was reading that, what I was um, thinking about in terms of finance, what we typically will do with an individual um, is say, okay, what's, what's your, not your passion, but what's your goals? What do you want to achieve in life? And then as a financial planner, you kind of work backwards to say, okay, how can we make it so that you can, you're financially free to be able to do all of these things or to be able to support you doing those things? And I think when somebody says, you know, what I want to achieve in life is, and they could say, um, you know, to send my kids to private schools, it's a nice sensible goal, or they could say to buy a Ferrari and live half my life and half my time in Las Vegas. Um, for us, it's not for us to say that's a good goal, that's a bad goal, it's to say it doesn't matter, it's your goal, you do what you want and we'll work out how to get you there. Um, but what I was wondering is actually when we're asking those questions of individuals, what's your goals, where you're trying to get to, and kind of back to the earlier um, presentation as well, it's this, it's this route that people think they're supposed to be on. So I have to leave education, get a job, get married, have kids, you know, have some holidays, retire, like this very set path. Um, so if we're asking what their goals are, almost their goals are already predetermined by the world that they've grown up in. Um, and I just wonder if what we should be doing is even even further kind of pushing back on that and saying but is it really a goal is retiring at 55 you know and sending your kids to private school is that really genuinely what it is or is it what you're kind of conditioned to think yeah i think it's a really really good point really interesting and i i um i i think you could probably try and inquire as to what makes because i think we everyone in this room can agree that the north star of all of our lives the ultimate goal is to be happy and your happiness is achieved by your own path so um, if you wanted to interrogate that more, I would ask them, you know, when in their life have they been most happy? What are the things that make them feel most happy and fulfilled? And um, one would assume that achieving more of that is their goal. So, um, and you're right, you're completely right, because if you'd asked me, well, I mean, that's why my book is called Happy Sexy Millionaire, because at 18 years old, I wrote in the front page of my diary that my four goals in life were to... Um, buy a Range Rover Sport. Bear in mind, I was like shoplifting in Moss Side in Manchester at this point. I was like stealing pizzas, not, not items. I was nicking Chicago town pizzas because I was broke. Um, buy, a Range, buy a Range Rover Sport. Didn't have a driving license. I was, I was going to do that before I was 25. Make a million pounds before I was 25. Work on my body image because I was super, super skinny. And uh, get a girlfriend. And like the Range Rover Sport was... Ne I, I did all those four things. And upon, upon getting the Range Rover Sport and all those things, realized that this wasn't it. This wasn't it. And I sold my Range Rover um, um, and stopped aiming at those kind of really empty things. Is it someone else's job to tell me what my goals are? Probably not. I think a lot of, to be fair, I think in life you have to sometimes get the thing to know it's not the thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you encounter that a lot in financial services with, with people that are aiming for materialistic. Yeah, but if it's, if it's taken you until you're 65 to get the thing and then you realise it's not the thing, you haven't got a long time left to do something about it. <laughs> and I just, right. <laughs> I just thought that, yeah, almost you could end up spending a, a lot of years and actually have a client and they say, here's my goals, and you go ta-da-da-da, and 15 years, 20 years later, you've achieved your goals, and, but then they're dissatisfied still, but not because we've done anything wrong, but because that wasn't kind of challenged enough at the outset to know that we're kind that of doing the right thing. That was never really their goal, yeah. right? And that's, that's, yeah, I talk about this a lot in the book and on stage a lot that you it's really hard to distinguish between the external voice and the internal voice because the external voice feels so strong the external voice can be your mother telling you that you should go and be a lawyer and it's hard to understand whether that's your aspiration and the thing that would make you happy or you'd be satisfied from pleasing someone else 
It's a really hard journey to get there and to really be able to sort of drown out that external noise and listen to that, that voice inside of you. And um, take it took me a long time. And I, I've got to be honest, because it's really easy, it'd be easy for me to say otherwise, but had I not um, achieved my goals, I don't think, I think I still, would still be trying to get a Lamborghini. You know, I really think yeah. I would be. And, I, and it, it's just such an empty way to live. Like, it's always oh, easy to say that now, Steve, but you can tell now that I'm here that I don't spend money on stuff. Like, my, my goals now, um, my, especially as it relates to my professional goals, are to um, work with people I love, striving towards worthwhile, um, worthwhile goals that, that challenge me. So it's like people that I'm, I love, like working with really good people, having a worthwhile goal, which means that upon attaining it, it would have been worth the struggle, critically important, and then it has to be a challenge. So worthwhile challenge with people I love. It's very simple for me. If I do that for the rest of my life, I think I'll be happy. Um, but it's not stuff. Yeah. And also, I think with your goals, the best goals are the ones that are, this is not a word, I don't think, but incompletable. I came to learn this with my, my workout regime as well. I, I think I talk about this in the book, I don't know. But um, every year I said to myself, I want to have like, I want to look good for summer. So you get into January, I'm working out two times a day in the gym, smashing it, smashing it. When summer passes, or I look good, my goal has now become unanchored. I get into October, and I can't physically understand how any human would want to go to a gym. I've, I'm completely unanchored. So my new goal, and I've been, go I've been working out every day now for a, a year and a half, my goal is just to be consistent because, because it feels good, and I love feeling good. I love being high energy. I love the confidence it gives me. And I, love the f I love what it does for my mind. I can't complete that, you know what I mean? It can't become an anchor, so, yeah. Um, so, just talking on disruption, um, and again, that's kind of the, the theme that we've had for the day and clearly something that you've done um, a lot in the past. I guess with, with finance, there's, there's need for a lot of change, and that's why kind of most of the people are here. Um, but it is a traditional industry. Um, it's not kind of easily built to, to develop rapidly. It's heavily regulated, so we're literally restricted. And also, it's very personal to the end client. So, you know, we, we could go, let's just tear up the rule books and go crazy and do what we want. But we're dealing with real humans with their goals and their finances. So you kind of need to be mindful of it. Um, but with that in mind, what's your general philosophy on disruption? What's kind of the way that you tend to approach it? What's any, any sparks of inspiration? Interesting. I've got, I mean, I've got, I've got so many. Um, you probably do a hundred things as a business. And I think the way you'll become a really innovative business is by really thinking about those things from first principles, which is, I, I'm like a big advocate and I think someone that naturally thinks in terms of like first principles, things I know to be true. Probably why I dropped out of university, quit my businesses, found social media at a time when people didn't think it was a serious thing because um, I just, I was more focused on creating new solutions to the problems I was facing today than accepting convention. And like, well, we talked a little bit about it there, but even the way that you deliver financial services to your clients, the channels you use, the way in which you do it, um, you, could, you could cause huge disruption in that space by delivering it in a more modern, innovative way that was much more in the interest of the, the customer and not in the interest of how you've set up your business because it's been running for a decade. And I, you start with these, like, for, and for first principle thinking, you just go back to what you know to be true. And for me, as it relates to how you deliver financial services to your customers, I would, I would quite literally, and I've done this before at my old business, I would quite literally plan out, I would quite literally take an, uh, you know, a profile of one of my customers and just write out what they do for their entire day 
and find, and we do this at Social Chain a lot when we're thinking about customers. So they wake up in the morning, they brush their teeth, they then go downstairs and have breakfast, they check their phone, and I'm trying to find the place within their average day where we would make sense to have a, um, make the most sense to have an impact on their lives or to make, have a presence in their lives. That suited them. And when you start doing this, and that's the first, a first principle way of thinking, you think, oh, actually, um, we should really be contacting them at this time via a WhatsApp message using, we can build a WhatsApp chatbot. So if they've ever got any questions, because I'm sure you get a lot of the same questions, they can WhatsApp you, and this is all possible. This is a technology we've built for clients. They can WhatsApp you their question. They get an instant response. If, if it's a question that your, your machine learning algorithm doesn't know, then it can put you through to someone live to give them, you know, to give them a, an answer within a couple of hours. It's worth a try. And like, if you don't try these things, if you don't look at the a thousand, sort of a hundred things you're, you're doing as a business, the company culture, the way you're delivering your services to the clients, the services you're delivering in this modern world, and you don't try and find new ways to just um, experiment for new models of delivering those services, then someone else will. And they're going to come eat your lunch. And it's going to be some, you know, some young person that had nothing to lose, was able to be agile, um, and they'll build the financial services company of the future. So you've got to disrupt yourself. And it's, yeah, it's not, yeah. That's what truly innovative companies do. They don't do what, they don't make one great innovative decision. If you look at Apple, I can name a hundred small things from the way that their shops looked. They almost designed them like art galleries because having a thousand iPhones in a shelf makes the iPhone, because of the principles of scarcity and psychology, makes it devalued. Having one and giving it a meter of space makes it feel more valuable. They removed the um, keyboard. This is, this is like a hundred small innovations that created a truly innovative business. And uh, it's those marginal gains that I think will change the game. Amazing. Um, and I just wanted to ask someone um, with the Dragon's Den. Um, so on Stephen's profile is um, how it started versus how it's going. And how it started was in 2011. Yeah, um, applying to go and appear on Dragon's Den and then in 2021 actually being the new dragon. Um, so I'm guessing, firstly, your original application wasn't successful. They didn't even reply. Oh. Um, have you, I, I, I don't know if you've done it yet, have you been in and kind of done some filming? And if so, how, how do you feel? Do you wish you had had that chance to be on the other side of it? Or do you think it's better that you've just kind of come straight in on this side? I, like, when the, when the entrepreneurs walk through the doors, I'm like sometimes like terrified for them and I never realized I'd feel that way right. when you someone comes through because you're just chilling in the green room chatting or Peter Jones da, 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 da. and then you go in the den you sit down and then someone comes through the door and they are shaking and you and for a second you just get to feel how much this means to them and then you think of course it does their entire family are watching all of their friends and they've got to deliver this thing in three minutes and there's t tons riding on it um, it's high pressure the show is very real it's exactly what you think it is right. There's no like smoke and mirrory. It's my money. I get. I have to make the decision there whether I'm investing in them. Um, it's 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 intense. Yeah. Do you still have the piles of money on the table? Yeah. Idea? Did you have to go to the cash machine like every day to every get 250 day. pounds? It, honestly, out? every day. It's hard yeah. to get cash, isn't it? It's, it's security risk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm to back the next day. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, 
And I had one other question, but I don't know if you can answer it, which was in the book, um, when, you, when we were talking about kind of money and happiness and that um, it doesn't automatically equate to it. And you said that you know some people who are billionaires, but are still very unhappy. Um, who? Oh, <laughs> Why? Sorry, I can't say their names, but now, yeah, do you know what it was? I was, I was 18 and I, was, you know, I, was, I thought Lamborghinis and big houses were, were, were it. I thought that was going to make me happy. And then I met this guy who became a really good friend of mine. And he had, he had nine cars outside his house, two Lamborghinis, massive mansion. And honestly, like the most miserable, like behind the scenes, the most miserable person I'd ever met. And then I went and met this other billionaire who runs a big company in the UK. And I sat there with him for a couple of hours and I thought, oh my God, he's miserable too. And then I met this other billionaire who runs this big um, empire that's on the stock market. And I thought, you're also miserable. Like, you're, these are amongst some of the most unhappy people I know. So... It, that was, I, I think I write about it in the book and I say like, I'm so glad that I got to like experience their misery vicariously before I spent my life thinking that becoming a billionaire was it. Mm. And like now I, I like don't have a car. I have an electric bicycle. I live in the building I work in. I, I'm pretty low key. I don't really spend much money on anything. Um, sometimes travel or whatever, but it's, you know, and I'm glad that I didn't have to learn that lesson myself. Um, I'm, listen, I'm not saying I hate because it's super cliche to say money doesn't make you happy. Like my life is very like I get to choose my struggle, yeah. and that's the, the big freedom, difference. isn't it? The financial freedom. Yeah, I get to choose the things that I suffer over these days. Whereas when I was working in call centres, I, I got the you know I, the, uh, I, I couldn't choose that. I wasn't going to eat. So that's the difference. Not if you run from the font like that. No. <laughs> I, was, I was doing night shifts, so it's like oh, it's hard work. Um, amazing. I've got a quick fire. If that's all sure. right. Okay. Staying in or going out? Staying in. Beer or wine? Sorry? Beer or wine? Wine. Duncan Bannatyne or Peter Jones? Peter Jones. Oh, <laughs> I mean, quick, quick. No, he's fire. a quick guy. I've never met someone so nice. I he was Aww. acting. I thought he was fake. Like, when I thought he can't be this nice, and then day two, I'm like, he can't be this nice. You get 20 days in, I'm like, this is the nicest human being I've ever Really? Met. Like, ask me if he can pop out for a cigarette. Oh. Mind if, like, the nicest guy I've ever met, honestly. Oh. Book or movie? Book. Would you rather run a marathon or climb a mountain? Climb a mountain. Good view at the end. Yeah. Um, Favourite social media app? Twitter. Mm. It's like my library. I, I learn a lot. My girlfriend's so. there and I can't get in at the moment because so, the board is closed. So, yeah. um, and is a hot dog a sandwich? It's a thinker. It's got to be. It's got to be. Because, I mean, what makes a sandwich? Two, two pieces of bread, filling. It's just... Um, disruptive like an innovative sandwich <laughs> um, amazing well thank, thank you. you thank Thanks you so for much time. for joining us appreciate you. <laughs> wow that really was insightful and interesting quite different from our usual nonsensical rumblings um i think Stephen made some really good points and pushed the boundaries of what we always thought we knew in finance um and you know i absolutely love it when somebody pushes some boundaries quite the little bugalugs myself um, as you can agree um but thank you very much for listening to this special edition of our show thank you to kathy and Stephen for appearing um Thank you to Second Draft for producing and please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe from wherever you normally get your podcasts. Thanks, bye.